Well, hi, everyone. Why don't we pray before we think about God's word? Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us clear minds and open hearts as we think about your word to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the return of Christ was very real to me at times when I was in high school. The song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, which was sung by the Christian musician Larry Norman, was still part of the Christian subculture at the time. And whereas I don't entirely agree with Norman's interpretations of the end times, it was certainly impressed upon me that Christ could return at any time. Uh, the chorus of the song went, I wish we'd all been ready, and I certainly wanted to be ready, and I wanted my family and friends ready for when Christ might return. Thanks to the grace of God, I became a Christian when I was about 10, 11 or 12, and the return of Christ was something rather which I understood uh, and believed and was expecting. And so in high school sometimes, if I heard particularly loud thunder, I would think, oh, is this it? I remember being outside one night and seeing a particularly impressive shooting star. And I thought, I wonder if this is bringing in the end times. When I was in year 11, I was at home from school one day sick and I was listening to my radio. I think it was 2SM. And they had some specials on about prophecies and predictions. And that particular day, there was someone who was apparently a Christian who was using the Bible uh, and applying some of the future predictions in the Bible to things around at the time, like I think, you know, the Cold War and the crisis in the Middle East. And he got to a part of it where he said to everyone, go get your bank cards, look at your bank cards. Now, bank cards were sort of like old credit cards and they had, they had three Bs on them. And he said, look at your credit cards. Do you see the number 666 there? You know, the, the number of the beast from Revelation chapter 13. I was pretty spooked. I thought, oh, the end times might be almost upon us. Now, what do you make of that? Me in high school thinking about those things. Was I someone who had an overactive imagination? Or was I unrealistic? Or was I naive? Or was I a bit of an extremist? Or had I cottoned onto something rather which perhaps most people hadn't cottoned onto? Well, today we're going to think about the return of Christ and some ways in which that should impact on our behaviour now. We're in the final week of our four-week series entitled Trusting Jesus. We're going through Luke chapter 12, and we've been looking at different things which can push us off course in our Christian life. And the issues I want to think about today are the problems of spiritual apathy and spiritual slackness. Spiritual apathy and slackness are things which are, uh, I guess, displeasing to God, discouraging to others, and ultimately dissatisfying for us ourselves. And so it'd be good to think about today's passage to work out how we can avoid veering off course or falling into these sorts of traps. Now, our passage is Luke 12. We're looking at verses 35 to 48. The topic is trusting Jesus over apathy. Um, you may have been able to download an outline of the sermon. And if you have that, you'll see that firstly, we're going to be thinking about living in the light of the end. That's verses 35 to 40. And then leading in the light of the end. That's verses 41 to 48. 
So let's start with living in the light of the end, verses 35 to 40. Now, I mentioned that we were going to be thinking about apathy. The word apathy describes, I I guess, a lack of interest or enthusiasm for something rather. And today I want us to think about spiritual apathy, which I want to define as, I guess, a lack of enthusiasm or interest in following Jesus. Now, as some of you may be able to guess, I think that spiritual apathy is a real issue in our country. In other lands where life is hard or Christians are persecuted or where ideas of the spiritual are prominent in culture, it can be easier to stay spiritually engaged. For example, I often hear stories about what's happening with the church in the country of Iran. The church, I understand, is growing and spreading there. But it's a country which actively represses Christians for their faith. Because of their faith, Christians in Iran have lost their jobs, lost homes, lost custody of children, been physically abused, rejected by friends and family, and unjustly imprisoned. If you decide to follow Jesus in Iran, you really have to count the cost. It's either a case of boots and all, more so than not at all. Now, in Australia, it's different. Uh, Even in Australia today with COVID, relatively speaking, life is still fairly easy. I'm not saying it's easy for everyone, but on a world level, life in Australia is pretty easy. Opposition to our Christian faith is relatively mild, and our culture is naturally more materialistic than spiritual. So Australia can be a breeding ground for spiritual apathy. And this apathy can seep into the church and even seep into our own lives. So if that's a concern for you, the passage here should help. The passage examines Christ's return and some of its implications. And Jesus starts in verse 35 by telling a parable. Let me read. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants, waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Now, in the first century, wedding banquets were not the sort of three or four hour affairs we might have today, but they took much longer. They could even go for up to a week. So when a master says to his servants, look, I'm going off to a wedding banquet, he could arrive back at any time in the next few days, day or night. So it was up to the servants to make sure they were ready for whenever the master may happen to return. Now, in this parable, the master, of course, represents Jesus. The servants are people. And the idea is that we as people need to be ready for Christ's return, which could take place at any time. Now, um, the fact that any time could also be at any unexpected time is highlighted in verse 40 which says that the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, what does it mean to be ready for Christ's return? Does it mean that we should be in a perpetual state of hyper-vigilance, jumpy and on edge, perhaps like someone who's returned from a war zone or something like that? Well, no, I don't believe it means that. It means simply that we should get on living in a way as Christians with which Christ would be pleased if he returned and saw what we were up to. 
Perhaps they're like a student at school. Their teacher goes out of the classroom. That student just gets on with their work, knowing that when the teacher comes back, they'll just be getting on with their work. So if we're just getting on with following Jesus in God's strength as best we can, then we're ready for Christ's return. Now, Christ's return can be a real motivator for getting on with serving Christ. But I wonder how do you, how do you feel emotionally about the thought of the return of Christ? Do you look forward to it with joy and anticipation or more trepidation and fear? See, Jesus highlights in this, this teaching that the return of Christ can be something or other to which we can look forward to. If we are following Jesus, being ready for his return will be worth it. Verse 37 says, it will be good. I'm emphasizing the word good there. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Now, the Greek word translated it will be good for is a word makarios, which means blessed, fortunate, happy. So those who are found ready are blessed, fortunate and happy. But how so? How are they blessed, fortunate and happy? Well, did you notice the twist in verse 37? You see, you might have expected that those servants who were ready for the master when he returned to the house would, upon their master's return, get about serving and waiting on their master. But that's not what the passage says will happen here. The passage says in verse 37, Truly I tell you, he, that is the master, will dress himself to serve, will have them, that is the servants, recline at the table and will come and wait on them. You see, it says here that the master will wait on the servants, not vice versa, which is what you might respect, expect. Imagine for a moment that you were invited to high tea, say, at Buckingham Palace. You're very excited about going to the residence of the Queen. You turn up for the afternoon tea, you sit down, and then lo and behold, there comes the Queen pushing a trolley with, with tea, milk and sugar on it and comes up to you and serves you. Imagine that. Or more so, perhaps more accurately in the light of the parable, imagine you worked at Buckingham Palace and you're supposed to be organising a tea for people or a high tea for a group of people. The Queen turns up in the kitchen and says, look, I've got this one. You go out there, take a seat. I'll come out and serve you. And the Queen goes out and serves her own staff. High tea. It's describing that sort of thing. So uh, if we view the return of Christ as bringing in that sort of thing, we will look forward to the return of Christ more as Christmas than an exam. We look forward to Christmas. We're a bit nervous of exams often. So the implication of this is that Christians should be ready for Christ's return, staying spiritually awake. Now, we could ask ourselves a few questions at this point. One might be, firstly, are we actually going to reflect on the turn of Christ, return of Christ? Are we going to do that in an effort to remain spiritually awake? Or do we think to ourselves, oh, that sounds a bit weird, a bit extremist. I'm not a fanatic. And just push the idea to a side, that side and get on with being spiritually apathetic. Or 
perhaps when we think of the return of Christ, do we theologically consider it and note, yes, that is a theologically correct statement, and then take that statement, put it over, file it away, and then forget about it and just get on with being spiritually apathetic. Or do we think to ourselves, yeah, yeah, sure, Christ will return at some time, but it hasn't happened yet, and it probably won't happen in my lifetime, so we forget about it and get on with being spiritually apathetic. Now, this last response is not a new one. In fact, it seems to have been around in the very first century itself. Uh, the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, he says, They will say, Where is this coming? He has promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. I don't know where you're watching this at the moment, but if you're able just perhaps glance outside, look outside the window, uh, see what's going on there. Looking around Winmalee, Springwood, Falkland Bridge, Yellow Rock, Hawkesbury Heights, wherever you are, does the return of Christ feel imminent? Or is it more just same old, same old? You see, sometimes it doesn't feel like the return of Christ is imminent, yet Jesus, the Son of God, says it will happen it could happen at any time, and that it will be unexpected. Now, if we're followers of Jesus, we need to trust Jesus. Do you trust Jesus on this one? Obviously, we should. Now, secondly, how might the return of Christ impact us? Uh, it should reduce spiritual apathy and motivate following Jesus. And this seems to be the, the testimony of various Christians. I mentioned in a sermon a few months back, uh, that the great theological reformer, Martin Luther, and the great Christian social reformer, Lord Shaftesbury, both very influential and active Christian men, were both very influenced by the thought of Jesus' return. Luther once said, as I quoted, there are two days in my calendar, this day and that day, referring to Jesus' second coming. And Lord Shaftesbury later in life reflected, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. Seems that such reflections for these men would have fired them up and motivated them in their Christian service. Well, given that it's useful and we should do it, how might we go about reminding ourselves of Christ's return? A few brief thoughts. We can consciously reflect on passages of Scripture that speak of it, such as this one. If we go to a church service which has liturgy in it, often the liturgy of the Anglican prayer book uh, reminds us of Christ's return. So in one of the versions of the Lord's, Lord's Supper that we use here at this church, there is a point where the congregation says, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And we can work out ways to remind ourselves. Lord Shaftesbury, who I referred to earlier, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, had the words, come Lord Jesus, in Greek, placed on the flaps of his envelopes. So he would have regularly seen them. Uh, Georgia Condi, uh, my fellow workmate, told me this week that she had the following words, I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My saviour is my brother, every Christian is my brother too. She has those words written on a note on her fridge, at her desk and on her bedside table. Now, these words are the words of the great 20th century theologian J.I. Packer. 
Georgia has these written up to remind ourselves and she often goes over them uh, during the day, she tells me to, I guess, keep things in their proper perspective. And as a church, we can remind each other of the return of Christ in sermons, in studies, socially, these sorts of things. So that's living in the light of the end and its, its great practical usefulness. Now let's think about more briefly, point two, leading in the light of the end, verses 41 to 48. Peter asks in verse 41, to Jesus, he asks Jesus, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? He seems to be asking, does the preceding warnings apply to just the apostles or the disciples or, or, or everyone? And in response, Jesus gives further teaching, which seems to be particularly applicable to Christian leaders. And so I'm going to apply it to Christian leaders. He seems to be warning Christian leaders against things which might include neglecting their duties or misusing their position or being lax with their morals. Now, there, there are many thought forms of Christian leaders. There are Christian leaders at church, members of staff, small group leaders, youth leaders, kids leaders, music leaders, etc., etc. There are Christian leaders in the home, uh, parents or perhaps older siblings uh, can be Christian leaders. And any Christian influencer in a group of Christians uh, can be viewed, I guess, as such. Now, uh, the parable, uh, Jesus again tells a parable where he, which can apply well to warning Christian leaders to stay on track. And again, this uh, references and focuses on the truth that Christ will return. Jesus starts with the positive side of the equation for Christian leaders in verses 42 and 43. He says, the Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Again, the Greek word here is makarios, which means blessed. In this parable, the master is, of course, Jesus, the manager of the servants, uh, can be understood to be the Christian leaders, and I guess this other servants can be those who the Christian leaders lead. Now, the Christian leader will be blessed if he carries out his or her task faithfully. Can you think of Christian leaders who faithfully uh, carry out their ministry? I, I can think of many. I can think of many at this church, at other churches, well-known Christians, you know, your you, you John Stotts, your you Corrie Ten Booms, your Billy Grahams. Now, how does this passage tell us that Christian leaders who are faithful will be blessed? Verse 44, truly I tell you, he, that's Jesus or the master here, will put him in charge of all his possessions. The message here is that being faithful in Christian ministry and leadership will be worth it. But what does being put in charge of the master's possessions indicate? Now, it's hard to be sure, but it probably indicates being given some sort of responsibility, some sort of service in the kingdom of God after Jesus's return. Life after death will not be passive, it seems. We won't just be sitting around twiddling our thumbs. Uh, we will have things to do. Now, lest any busy students watching or exhausted parents or worn out retirees think, 
What? More work after death? I guess the point here is it'll be the sort of work or activity which we were created for, which will be fulfilling. It'll be what we truly want. I watched a series on Netflix last year called The Good Place, which you know, I found quite amusing and interesting, but it depicted for, for part of it uh, life after death in a place not unlike heaven. And as the, uh, the episodes went on, you suddenly started to pick up that it was presenting eternal life or their version of eternal life as, as somewhat boring. You could get bored in it. Well, uh, that is not the sort of heaven which Jesus would be describing. We won't get bored. We won't get worn out. It'll be the sort of thing which is, is just the sort of thing we're, we were created for. Being faithful and Christian leadership will be worth it. Now, the sad reality, of course, is that Christian leaders are not always faithful to their tasks. Christian leaders can sometimes be lazy. There's the old adage that, you know, Christian ministers just work one day a week. Uh, and... Uh, in reality, most ministers I know tend to overwork more than underwork, but it certainly is possible in Christian leadership to create the appearance of work rather than working. Good question to ask ourselves. Christian leaders can also neglect their duty. They cannot put sufficient time into their sermon preparation, Bible study preparation, support of, of people they have responsibility for. Christian leaders can sadly misuse their position to bully those for whom they have some sort of pastoral oversight. And there are a few Christian leaders uh, who have been criticised uh, for bullying. Christian leaders can misuse their position with sexual abuse. And I won't mention names, but there are many well-known Christian leaders of various sorts uh, who have been tarred with that brush. And Christian leaders can, of course, veer off into false doctrine, sometimes through not examining the scriptures possible, properly, sometimes through, I guess, just taking in the views of the culture around us and being influenced by that more than God's word. Now, Jesus indicates here very clearly that not being faithful is not worth it. He appears to speak of three forms of spiritual slackness here. The first is blatant disobedience and slackness, verses 45 and 46. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers." Now, that's very strong language. The point is that Jesus abhors blatant disobedience. Abuse of this sort will attract just judgment. Now, the implication here is that reflecting on Jesus' return may have helped improve the situation. Now, the second sort of disobedience is what I might call conscious disobedience. Verse 47, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants. Describe that sort of person. And the third is ignorant disobedience outlined in verse 48. Basically, all three groups face varying and appropriate degrees of judgment for um, their neglect of their duties. Now, the big message here for Christian leaders or any Christian really is to stay spiritually faithful. We should use our gifts and responsibilities that Jesus has given us for his service, for his glory not 
for selfish gain. And we can be spurred on by a contemplation of Christ's return. So in conclusion, if Christ was to return now, what would he find us doing? Now, if he returned right now, he'd find us watching this sermon on video, wouldn't he? But if he came back into our lives, you know, yesterday, tomorrow, in this period of our life, what would he find us doing? Would we be awake? Would we be faithful? So the big idea of this passage is Christ will return. Stay awake. Stay faithful. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're aware of the dangers of spiritual apathy and spiritual slackness. We pray that we will be people who do reflect on your imminent return and that as we follow you, we would stay awake and stay faithful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.